So again, today we're answering one of the big questions, the three big ones. Where are you going? So last week we saw where those who have no faith in Christ, we saw where they're going. But what about Christians? Where are Christians going? Well, great news. If you have put your faith in Christ alone, the Bible says and God says that you are on your way to heaven. Just think about that word, heaven. The very word heaven is synonymous with beauty, comfort, peace, satisfaction, and contentment, and more. In fact, the adjective form is often used, by the way, to describe things that are wonderful and amazing. Uh, in fact, we the, the way we even use the word heaven in, in an adjective form is, is interesting because we, we might talk about, uh, you know, our roast that's in the oven being heavenly, or we, we might describe the scenery on the South Island is certainly heavenly, right? Uh, and, and there's even a wonderful ice cream flavor called heavenly hash. <laughs> it is so good. But friends, friends, heaven is far more than just an adjective. It's far more than even an attitude. Heaven is a place. In fact, heaven is a real place, okay? It is a place where the people of God go after they die, at least their physical bodies die. And because human nature is so tainted by the effects of sin, people left to their own instincts, sadly, will inevitably corrupt every spiritual truth in the Bible. People lacking a biblical perspective, always think wrongly about heavenly things. And here's what, you know, these pendulum swings, here's what happens. Either they ignore the spiritual realm altogether, like there is no such thing, or some choose instead to live for the this temporal world, or they, they, they become so absorbed in fantasies and legends that, you know, about the spiritual world that... Uh, you lose sight of truth altogether. Well, here's some good news, friends. I'll put the proposition first today for you. I think the proposition from today's text is this, that God wants us to long to be with Him in heaven. It's a real place. God's a real person. He does want you to be with Him. And He's made that possible. And so Revelation 21 here contains the the Bible's most exhaustive description of the new heaven and new earth, and also gives a a description of the capital city of heaven. We'll have a look at that. But let me just give you again the the context, the setting for you here. Remember, we saw in chapter 19, the Lord Jesus Christ returns as He promised He would. He ends the battle of Armageddon with a great slaughter. Then we, we, you, you, you come into chapter 20, you have the earthly millennial reign of Christ, which eventually comes to an end there, uh, as we saw last week with the, the great white throne judgment, where Satan is finally sentenced and uh, unbelievers are sentenced as well to the lake of fire. That is their eternity. That is where they go. And then we, we come here now to chapter 21, and, we see the whole universe is going to be dissolved. By the way, talk about global warming. Uh, 
if anybody reads their Bible, this this is real global warming, not not the fake news that we tend to hear from our government these days. Because when you look at chapter 21, verse 1, look what it says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So it's dissolved. It's gone. We'll see how that happens in a moment. But And then, and then we see everything we know is going to be made perfect. So let's just quickly, before we read the text, examine the process here by which this current universe is destroyed, and then how is God going to make all things new? Well, compare Scripture with Scripture. and Look at Second Peter here, chapter 3. Uh, Peter says that the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. This is global warming here. Uh, and notice what Peter says. It's being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, And the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. (laughs) Amen to that. My hope and my affections are not set on things here on earth. (laughs) Uh, I'm looking for the new heaven and the new earth. And so let's read about it here. Revelation 21. Put your eyeballs on the page here. Verse 1 says, Then... I saw, that's John speaking, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. But one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable. As for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Well, verse 1 gives us some good news. Let's just think about this. What is the new heaven 
and the new earth like? Well, in verse 1, it doesn't say a whole lot, but let me just highlight a few things for you. Number one, notice it is, it will be new in a quality sense. That word new is an interesting word. It does not mean new in a chronological sense. It's not, in other words, it's not talking about time. Although time is involved here, but that word new there is talking about new in a qualitative sense. In other words, the new heaven and the new earth will be something that is brand new. It's brand new. It's something that's fresh. It's something that's never, ever been seen before. By the way, did you notice why God must create everything new? Well, we haven't talked about that really yet, but there's a good reason why God has to create everything new, because the Bible tells us the everything's cursed by sin. We're under the fall, right? And so God says there in verse 1 that the first heaven and, and earth are gone at this point. They're gone. And you might say, well, where did they go? <laughs> well, the Bible says they're dissolved. And why have they dissolved? Well, God has to destroy this present earth because it's corrupted by sin. It's corrupted by sin. We see this in places like Romans 8, for example. Look at this. Romans 8, 19 says, For the creation waits with er eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. We have been living under the curses of Genesis 3 for thousands and thousands of years. But it's not permanent. God's going to deal with that too. And so that's why we see the first heaven and earth are gone at this point here. But of all the things that God could have said, Jesus, in fact, could have said, Look at number three here, because it says, there will no longer be any sea. There will no longer be any sea. Now, there's a cultural thing going on here. You need to understand, Jews, Jews did not like the sea. The, the, the sea was a scary place. It, uh, it meant all sorts of bad things for them. But what a big change from our present earth. You can see the picture on the screen there, that, a, that our current earth is made of uh, approximately 75% water. In fact, all of life is dependent on water for its survival. And it's interesting here that, uh, that, that believers' glorified bodies, for, for some reason, are not going to require water anymore. Just like Jesus' resurrected body didn't require that. Which is totally different from our present human, human bodies, by the way, which you probably know most of your blood is made out of water. Your, your very skin and the, the flesh around your bones there is uh, mostly made out of water. So things are going to be vastly different in the new heaven and the new earth. I also think there's some uh, other things going on here. But uh, this is one of the descriptions that the Holy Spirit gives to us. Uh, looking forward to all the things of how how sin has cursed even the universe. Even that's going to be removed 
let's think about the capital city of heaven. What is the new Jerusalem like? Well, verse 2 tells us a little bit. And so John's now kind of moving to this description of the capital city we find here in the eternal state. And first thing he's, just let me highlight for you that, friends, this is an actual city. Uh, We shouldn't spiritualize this or turn this into some, you know, figment of our imagination. The new Jerusalem is, is, is an actual city. And by the way, it's not heaven. Don't confuse it with heaven. Uh, this is heaven's capital city. It's not synonymous with heaven because if you look at chapter 21, verse 16, the Holy Spirit actually gives you dimensions for this city. Uh, verse 16 says the city lies four square. It's length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod is 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. So it has, it has uh, literal dimensions there. So it cannot be confused with heaven, the city. We also see, number two, that the new Jerusalem here is, notice, it is filled with holy people. Because he says in verse 2, I saw this holy city, new Jerusalem. Why is it called holy? Well, the New Jerusalem is called the holy city because everybody now in this city is actually holy, finally, like God. And so now this concept of a city is including things like relationships and activity and responsibility, unity, communion, cooperation. These are the sort of things that cities long for and really never are able to achieve because of our sin natures, but the sin nature is going to be gone. We're holy. So unlike evil cities that exist in our present earth, the perfect people in the new Jerusalem are going to be able to live together and work together in perfect harmony. Won't that be nice? Right? You're you're never going to have your neighbor taking you to court like I used to have. That was a nightmare. You're not going to have your neighbor from hell anymore, you know, doing terrible things to you, right? None of that stuff's going to happen in the new Jerusalem. But notice where the city comes from, because it says the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven. So it, it has to be distinct and different. And so the implication here, friends, is that the new Jerusalem, the capital city of heaven, already exists. And so when God creates a new heaven and a new earth, the new Jerusalem here is going to descend right into the very midst of the new earth. And so we'll be able to serve. And this will be the dwelling place of all redeemed people then for all eternity. Now why is the city, notice it's pictured, of all the descriptions God can give, why is it pictured here as a bride? We love brides. And notice we see here that the New Jerusalem contains the bride and takes on her character. And by the way, this this moment is the final stage of this marriage ceremony we've been looking for for a long, long time. It's the final stage, and it's corresponding here to the eternal state. And so John saw this bride. Notice she is adorned for her husband because it's the time for the consummation. That word adorned, by the way, it means to order, to arrange. The bride has been ordered. The bride has been arranged. The bride's become appropriately ordered in all of her her beauty. 
And by the way, at, at this point in Revelation, the bride concept is going to expand to include not only the church since Acts chapter 2, but all the rest of all the redeemed people from all ages who've ever lived, and they'll be there in the eternal city. I appreciate what uh, one commentator says here about verse 3, and this isn't original with me. I got this from John MacArthur. He talks about what is the supreme reality of the new heaven and the new earth. That's that's point number 3, coming from verse 3. What is the supreme reality of the new heaven and the new earth? What, what would you say, for you, is the supreme glory and joy of heaven? What are you looking forward to? Well, verse 3 says, There's this loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. I hope that's your answer. I hope that is your answer. You have this unknown loud voice making a very important announcement, probably coming from an angel. And what is this important announcement that the angel made? Wow. God says he's going to tabernacle. He's, he's going to set up his tent. He's going to make his dwelling place with the Christian. He's not going to be like Greek and Roman gods who, you know, you know, disappear and go up on top of mountains or somewhere else. And you maybe might see them once in a while. Oh, no. Oh, no. He's coming right down next to your tent. He's tenting with you right next to your campsite. He's going to pitch his tent among his people, and he's no longer going to be far off. He's not going to be distant, on, you know, at the top of Mount Sinai or somewhere. But uh, this is amazing. The re- and really, it's it's the reality of what Jesus says in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. What do you see there? It's the pure in heart who will see God. His presence here is going to permeate heaven. It's no, it's not confined to one space. It's not stuck in the in the the holy of holies in the tabernacle or the temple any longer. No, and this wonderful truth should be mind-boggling. We have a heavenly voice, by the way, repeating this several different phrases here for you, but it's the same concept. The supreme reality of heaven is that God is going to be literally present with his people. Number four, another question to think about here is what will it be like then to live in God's glorious presence in heaven? If if he's setting up his tent Right next to ours, what, what is that like? Well, we see, first of all, that believers will enjoy fellowship with God. That's what it says. Fellowship with God. So now, no, no longer is your sin nature hindering, because what did Jesus say? It's the pure in heart who will see God. Now you're going to have this pure heart. So the imperfect sin-hindered fellowship that we have with God in this life is is going to... Well, it's not going to be like it is now, is it that? It's going to be totally different. It'll be full, complete, and unlimited. I look forward to that. I really look forward to that. We also see here that believers will see God as He is. 
you'll actually be able to see God as he is. You, you and I can't do that right now. We would die. We would be consumed if that did happen. So look what the Apostle John here says in 1 John 3. Because he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we, we, we shall see him as he is. Rejoice in that truth, friends. You will be made like Jesus when you see him. Well, an unveiled view of God is really impossible for a mortal man. And, that, and that's exactly what Yahweh told Moses, by the way, when Moses said, Hey, God, I want to see your glory. Let me see you. God says, You can't handle that, Moses. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock here. You're going to see the, the backside of my glory. The train just passed. And even that was too much for Israel to handle. And so even the saints in glory will not be able to fully comprehend all the infinite majesty of God. And so is it any wonder you have the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1 saying that he had a desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better for him. By the way, it's far better for you too. Believers have thought this for many centuries now, and I love the way the hymn writer Fanny Crosby put it in her wonderful song, My Savior First of All. Here's how she put it. By the way, remember, God took her eyesight. She was blind for most of her life. And so she was longing for the day when God would open her eyes again and she would see King Jesus. And so here's what she says. When my life's work is ended and I cross the swelling tide, when the bright and glorious morning I shall see, I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side, and His smile will be the first to welcome me. Through the gates to the city in a robe of spotless white, he will lead me where no tears will ever fall. In the glad song of ages I shall mingle with delight. But I long to meet my Savior first of all. I appreciate her heart in that she pours her heart out in that song. And I'm sure I'm sure she is with Jesus now and and she understands the longing of her heart being realized. But number three, we also see here that believers will worship with God. We, we've seen this over and over again in the book of Revelation. Every glimpse you've seen of heaven, from, starting in, in chapter 4 and 5, and then in chapter 7, 11, 19, over and over, you, every glimpse is revealing the redeemed and the saints and the angels worshiping God. That is what happens in... That's not the only thing, but that is one of the things that happens in heaven because God is worthy of that worship. And number four, we also see here in verse three that believers will serve God. By the way, this is also something we've seen throughout Revelation. That, For example, in chapter seven, it says these saints in heaven serve God day and night in his temple. What a privilege that would be to serve God. He's worthy of that as well. Number five, it says, then 
this, this may be shocking to some of you, but it says the Lord will serve believers. The Lord will serve believers. And Jesus, in, in parable story form, talks about this. You can turn over to Luke chapter 12. Look what Jesus says as he's, he's elaborating on this in Luke 12. Luke 12, verse 35, Jesus says this, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Notice what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is picturing himself here as this wealthy nobleman who's returning to his property and his estate after he's been away on a long trip. And what does he find in his servants? Well, he finds some servants ministering faithfully in his absence. And so what does he do to the faithful servants? He rewards them accordingly. And he's... And notice how he does this. He takes on the role of a servant. He prepares a feast for them. It's incredible. And by the way, the point, one of the points Jesus is making, that's the way it's going to be for believers in heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ will serve believers. Well, what differences are there? in the new heaven and the new earth? That's our fifth question to ponder. What differences are there in the new heaven and the new earth? There's a lot of differences from the present earth. Heaven is going to be so different from the present world that to describe it requires the Holy Spirit to use several negatives as opposed to positives. So what are these changes? Number one, God says He's going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, some people imagine they will be weeping as they're standing there before God, and and the record of all of their sins are shown to everybody in heaven. You ever heard one of those sermons? Really bad preaching, by the way, but um, I've heard one of those. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that God is going to show all the saints in heaven every sin you have ever committed or every sin you've ever thought or every sin you've ever spoken. There is no such record. In fact, I'm very thankful for Romans 8, verse 1, says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What this verse tells us is that there is an absence of anything for us to actually be sorry about. (laughs) God's saying, hey, no sadness, no disappointment, no pain, no tears of misfortune, no tears of remorse, no tears of regret, 
no tears for any reason whatsoever. It's gone. I'm thankful that God's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. The second negative he describes here of the new heaven and new earth, he says there will no longer be any death. Wow! Why, why is that? Well, because sin has been dealt with. How did God deal with sin and the curse? Well, I'm thankful that 1 Corinthians 15 says that death is swallowed up in victory and that Revelation 20 has already told us there that death is going to be cast into the lake of fire. One of your great enemies is finally dealt with. No more death. And number three, there will not be any mourning, which is talking about sorrow. It says, no, nor is there crying in heaven, which we already talked about tears. So what's that talking about? Well, sorrow is something a little different from crying, because as you know, crying, you, you, you get to see tears. So it's more of an outward thing. But God's saying, He's even going to deal with your inward pain, so that the sorrow you feel within your very being is also gone. Both of them are going to be gone one day. That's great. I'm thankful that God deals with that too. Well, that was prophesied way back in Isaiah 53 when it was talking about the great servant king, Jesus, which, which here, look what it says. He was despised and rejected by man, by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So friends, your pain, your sorrow, your crying has all been dealt with. It's been dealt with. Praise God for that. And so that leads to point number four there in the text, that there will be no more pain. How many of you are longing for that one? Yeah? No more pain. Imagine that. Pharmaceutical companies will go out of business. <laughs> you don't need paracetamol. No more ibuprofen or norepinephrine or whatever, whatever you know drugs people are on to deal with their pain. No more illegal drugs. <laughs> it's all gone. You're going to feel good all the time. Number six question is this. Well then, who lives in the new heaven and the new earth? <laughs> you, you say, this place sounds wonderful. I'd really like to spend eternity there. So, so uh, you know, how do I get in? How do I get in? Where's the contract? I'd like to sign that one, right? Well, verses six and seven gives a, a description here for us revealing who lives in the new heaven and the new earth? And it's interesting, the Holy Spirit only says really two things. Two things, at least in this text. Number one, we see heaven belongs to the thirsty. Heaven belongs to the thirsty. By the way, that phrase, if you look at verse 6, uh, if you turn back to Revelation 21, that is, Revelation 21 Verse 6, it, it talks about, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. 
And so that phrase there signifies those who recognize that you are desperate. You have a spiritual need that needs to be met. Friends, do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? As Jesus talks about in Matthew 5. Those who will enter heaven here are described as those who are dissatisfied with their hopelessly lost condition. You crave for God's righteousness with every part of your being. That's how you get into heaven. Jesus says so in Matthew 5. The psalmist talks about this sort of thing in Psalm 42. Look at this. Psalm 42 says, As a deer longs for flowing streams, so longs my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Well, the answer is, heaven belongs to the thirsty. <laughs> Those who are actually longing for Him. And so the promise to earnest seekers is their thirst is going to be satisfied. And that's the, one of the points Jesus was making to that Samaritan woman in John 4. Look what Jesus said to her. John 4, verse 13, she, Jesus says, Everybody, or everyone who thirsts of this water will be thirsty again. He's pointing to the water in the well, right? You, you drink of H2O, you're going to get thirsty again. Jesus says, But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus, my friends, is the one who can quench your thirst forever. And so the water in these passages symbolizes, as Jesus says here, it's symbolizing eternal life. And those who thirst for and are passionately seeking salvation are the ones then who will receive it. Are you passionately seeking Jesus? So heaven belongs to the thirsty, but number two, it also says there that heaven belongs to the overcomer. Heaven also belongs to the overcomer. Because look what verse 7 says, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So an overcomer, you say, well, what's that? What's, what's this conquering idea? Well, an overcomer is one who's exercising saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, th this is a concept we see elsewhere. If you look at your companion passages in your Bible there, for example, in 1 John 5, here's what the Bible says. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. How do you overcome? How do you become a conqueror? You must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus has said this several times. So the promise to the overcomer is that he or she is going, then will, will inherit those things. They will be obtaining an inheritance, as Peter says, which is imperishable, it is undefiled and is something that will not fade away. It is reserved in heaven for you. So the most wonderful promise to the one who overcomes here in verse 7. I love that. Do you see that promise? The Holy Spirit says, I will be his God. Huh. And 
equally amazing is God's promise to the one who overcomes there in verse 7. God says, I will, or, or that person, that individual, will be my son. You will be God's son. Just, just meditate upon that for a while. It's an incredible thought. See, friends, only in heaven will this inheritance and adoption be fully realized. But sadly, verse 8 tells us some bad news here. So let's think about this. Not everybody goes to heaven. Not everybody is a child of God. Some people are children of the devil, Jesus says. And so look what Jesus says in verse 8. Because he, he mentions some people who are excluded from the new heaven and the new earth. It's a very serious and solemn warning. And he's showing us who's excluded here. And the first person is, I find rather interesting here. Of all the people Jesus could mention, he says the cowardly. In verse 8. Who are the cowardly? Well, as far as I know, these are people who lack endurance. These are people who fall away when their faith is challenged. They're, and they're opposed by this world and Satan and their faith is shown to be not genuine. Jesus gave an interesting parable about these very people. He describes them in Matthew 13 in the parable of the soils. Look, look, look what Jesus says, because you need to think, of who are cowardly people? What are they like? Well, here's what Jesus says in Matthew 13, 20. He says, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately see, receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So beware of professors, as John Bunyan told us earlier. Beware of people who show something, maybe even some joy it might look like, but they're not real possessors of the faith. These are cowardly. They, they lack endurance, and they will fall away. These are the kind of people, when they fall away, are showing that they're not a Christian, and therefore they will not get into heaven. Well, I've put the, on the next slide here, you can see all the, the ones mentioned in verse 8. Let's just quickly talk about these. Because Jesus also mentions the faithless. Who are the faithless? Well, the faithless are the ones, obviously who lack saving faith. If your faith is in anything other than Jesus Christ, you do not have saving faith. You are a part of the faithless. And I fear that some, even sitting in this room, fit this category. Faith must be in Jesus Christ alone. And by the way, you can't have Jesus and then add something onto Jesus and say, I have Jesus. It's not Jesus plus whatever equals salvation. No, it's only Jesus. <laughs> only. You cannot have faith in anything else. Uh, it also mentions the detestable. That word detestable there means something that a person who is vile, you're utterly polluted, wholly into evil. <laughs> Very evil heart. I find it interesting that murderers are mentioned here as well. By the way, just let me just point out, you can be a murderer and still go to heaven. You can still be a murderer and go to heaven. So, 
John, the Apostle John in 1 John is very helpful. He talks about those who are, who are habitually in sin, who live in darkness. That's their permanent state. And so that's, that's what the Bible's talking about. So even somebody like the Apostle Paul, who was a murderer, can still go to heaven. So sin doesn't keep you from heaven. It's your unbelief <laughs> that keeps you out of heaven. And it's the same with someone who is sexually immoral. You, you could be immoral, like, for example, as many people do before their salvation, and still go to heaven, just like the, the people in Corinth. I love, I love what the, the Bible says. It was at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Such were some of you. you got this whole list of, of sinners mentioned there. But then God says, such were some of you. There were sinners in the church at Corinth. Oh, imagine that. Just like all of us. So, it's, it's the habitual ones. This, this is their lifestyle that keeps them out of heaven. The next one's very interesting as well. Sorcerers. Uh, sorcerer, by the way, is from the Greek word pharmakos. Sound familiar? And no, I am not saying pharmacists go to, go to hell. That's not what I'm saying, okay? And God's not saying that either. Pharm, that Greek word pharmakos, of course, you get your English words like pharmacy or pharmaceuticals from that particular word. And so you need to understand the context here that sorcery... Uh, would include those who use mind-altering drugs, particularly in cult religions. Uh, so Greeks and Romans would have done this um, so they could see and do and say weird things, right? That's, that's what drugs tend to do to people. So people involved in, in the occult particularly is what it's talking about there. And then God also says idolaters, that where your heart is is far from God, those who, who are worshiping basically themselves and have no love for God whatsoever, those are the ones who are excluded from heaven. Now, the last one that the Bible mentions is also very interesting, the, the liars. So those whose lives are characterized, because we're all liars, right? What makes you a liar? You, you lie. <laughs> well, we've all done that. But these are people whose entire life is characterized by these kind of things, and so you give evidence, then you're not actually a Christian. You're not saved, and therefore you never enter into the heavenly city. And, and on the contrary, their part will then be in the lake of fire, God says. And so in contrast to that, what do we see, though? Eternal bliss. Eternal bliss for those whose sins have been dealt with with Christ. You will not suffer, but you will have an eternal bliss. And so, friends, the new heaven and the new earth here are awaiting believers. But we've also seen the final hell awaits those resurrected unbelievers. For believers, it's going to be a universe of eternal happiness. For the unbeliever, it will be a terrifying place of unbearable torment and unrelieved misery. And so, friends choices you make in this life will be in the books. We, we, we saw that last time. There are books in heaven where God is keeping track of everything you think, say, and do. And so the choices you make, the things you do, the things you say, the things you think, will determine in which of those two realms you will live forever. Where are you going? 
friends. Where are you going? Your eternal destiny is so important. So may God enable you to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And that by believing in His name, you might have eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the good news that we've seen here. That this earth we live on and these bodies that we currently reside in are not for eternity. And there is something to live for and something outside of us in this life to look forward to. We're thankful for all these glorious truths that we've seen. Would you cause us to believe them as you have described them here for us? May we not doubt, uh, protect us from unbelief. Would you change our hearts so we would actually believe what your scripture says as Jesus has, has laid this out for us? May our faith be in him and in him alone. May we keep looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And we look forward. May we look forward. Give us eyes to see the eternal city, even though we are not there yet. May it be so real, like we, we, can, we can even taste it even now. Give us those kind of eyes to see, so that our affections would be set on things above and not on the earth. But until that day, whether death takes us or the rapture happens and Jesus receives us unto himself, whatever happens there, may we be faithful. May we be faithful with the life you've given to us. All for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray.